Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm Diana Baudet, and joining me today is Barton Gilman attorney Alex Julie. Alex routinely counsels clients in the areas of IP and education law, and it is just that intersection of laws that we are going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So what I think would be great to talk about today is any legal considerations around education content with online learning. Now that so much online learning is taking place due to COVID and the quarantine and restrictions, I would assume that a lot of schools are running into potential challenges with the extra content that they're putting on site, enrichment content, and then the actual approach to distance learning that schools are taking. So I'd love to get started on the legal side, and I will let you lead the conversation on where you think is the best starting point for us. Sure. I think your understanding of what has happened is is right on point. Uh, a number of schools have had to make an almost immediate transition to online or distance learning, uh, a nearly impossible task that has been impressively done by teachers and educators across the country. Yeah. And it's now at a point where the uh, education has come first and the transition has been made, but now there's a need to sort through what that looks like long-term and and what the legal and technology implications are. So we're going to try to see if we can cover some of those issues today and give a a survey of what schools and educators will want to think about as they make sure these distance learning practices are in place long-term so that there are not unforeseen consequences or inadvertent issues that come up. And I think maybe what might be most useful is, is for me to just touch upon different areas of, of intellectual property law, okay, um, contract law as well. There's an intersection there that we'll, we'll want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I can give you some things to think about, give the, the listeners some things to think about, and certainly go into depth where needed. Okay, that'd be great. And you're right. I want to echo your sentiment that the schools and educators have done a phenomenal job at coming up to speed very quickly in areas that I'm sure for many of them were untouched, unpracticed, and totally unknown. So what kinds of things, as teachers have now settled in and schools are settling in, what should they think about? I think to start, just having an awareness of the role that intellectual property plays in the content that they're producing. Mm -hmm. Because there is, as every teacher will tell you, a transition from being in the classroom to producing content, whether it's by video, Mm -hmm. uh, streaming, or some manner of performance, essentially. You know, when a teacher is in the classroom, they are performing for that classroom, performing through video or through streaming or whatever, whatever the technology may be, they're doing the same thing. So what I want to make sure that teachers and educators are thinking about in schools are the different types of intellectual property that need to be thought about. And primarily, that's going to revolve around copyright uh, and trademark law, Mm -hmm. uh, and then, again, contract law. And so I think to start, maybe what we can do is to review trademark law, Okay, and uh, we can try to envision putting together a curriculum and building an online an online course and, and what that might look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, any of these determinations or decisions are going to be informed by the ultimate goals of the school and the educator, uh, and then also where the content is hosted. It's going to look different for the school and the educator if the content is hosted through Google as opposed to 
independently on the school's own website. Mm-hmm. And that's going to vary from school to school, from district to district, uh, and type of school to type of school. Uh, and that's where there's nuance and depth that's needed that we won't be able to cover today, but certainly can be addressed on a one-to-one basis. Okay. So maybe... You want to talk about trademark law? Yeah, start? sure. So, I, I mean, I would love to understand better. It's new to me to learn that when teachers sit down and they're on a Zoom call, I'll just use my own daughter, for example, they're on a Zoom call. How would they trademark that content? Sure. What is usually helpful and, and what I'll cover in any legal considerations class that I'm teaching or presenting is just what trademark law is and, mm-hmm. and what copyright law is. So. Trademark law is a a source identifier. It's when you see a logo or a name Mm -hmm. and you know the source of the goods or services. And so here, it may sound a little bit strange, but the source of the goods and services is the school and the services is the education, the educational services. And so the, the trademark aspect of it is revolving around where the educational content is coming from. And that will be each individual school. And because the content is being put up online and because there may be a desire to make sure that students, uh, viewers, other schools know where it's from and Mm -hmm. can appreciate it's from, it it makes sense to think about trademarks and to use them in a way that allows the content to be appropriately identified. I don't want to use the word branded uh, because branded is often thought of uh, in a commercial sense, but a trademark indeed is a signifier of a brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here, what we're looking to do is we're using a trademark as a source identifier so that, like I said, a student, a teacher, a viewer knows where the content's coming from. Okay. That's a good place to start is if you envision yourself logging onto a streaming service or onto a video service, you want to know where the content's from. Mm -hmm. And does it have to be anything fancy? Does it have to be a logo? Can it just be the name of the school at the top? And then not to spill into things, but can it just be the copyright symbol that you'll often see at the bottom of websites, for example? Well, it wouldn't be the copyright symbol. The copyright symbol is for the actual copyrighted material itself. It's for the expression of the idea. It's it's for the expression of the content that you're teaching. The trademark symbol, the the R with the circle around it, that can be used when the mark is registered. So the mark that's used on the content, whether it's through a watermark in the background, if you can envision some manner of sleep production, which is fairly Mm -hmm. easily done now. Uh, I imagine most students that have some familiarity with editing video, uh, teachers probably as well now, you could put a logo at the bottom right or the bottom left corner. Mm -hmm. uh, And that logo could be the schools. It could be something unique that is developed or the content that has been produced and put online. It is important to note that trademark law has a number of requirements around what can and cannot be trademarked. Mm -hmm. So it may be a good time for a school to stop and do an audit of what its trademarks are and how they're used and if they are, in fact, protectable. Uh, This is not to say that a school needs to change its name or create a new logo, but there, there may be an opportunity here to tweak or revise or come up with a, a new name for the online content mm-hmm. that's going to be more easily protected. And the more that you think about that now, the more likely you are to be able to obtain federal registration. The more likely you are to obtain federal registration, the better position you are to protect your trademark and make sure that the content that's being produced by teachers isn't being misused or 
finding its way into other people's possessions in a way that wasn't intended. Okay. So it's not as simple as a teacher saying, I'm just going to put the school's logo on the top of the screen. No, it's not as simple as simply snapping your fingers and doing that. I, yeah. I also think that there is a need for a consistency. So mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the individual teacher who's making that decision. It should be administration who decides that there are going to be standards for how the school's logo or trademark is going to be used and employed. And the general idea is that the more that you think about intellectual property and the more that you understand intellectual property law, the more the content that's produced is protectable. And you can use copyright law, you can use trademark law, and you can use contract law as well to do that. And then also, the more you understand intellectual property law, the more you can make sure that you're not inadvertently violating it and finding yourself as a teacher or as a school in some unfortunate or unintended hot water. I think that there's been a an understanding that everyone's doing their best right now. But like most things, I suspect that as we settle in, you will see more and more instances of people taking issue or asserting their rights as to how intellectual property they own is being used. Okay. Yeah, I would imagine too. So is now a good time to talk about copyright? and how that kind of comes into play. I don't want to rush you on the trademark side, but I'm thinking maybe now is a good place to talk about the just the difference between the two. And if you could explain sort of that concept of that a copyright is about the expression, I think that might be confusing to some others too. Yeah, yeah. So I think, let me not explain this in legal terms so much as just an experience we've all had. Okay. When you are watching a video. At the beginning of the video, you see an introduction that you're familiar with, and you see a, a logo for the, the show or the content. Mm-hmm. That's a trademark because it's telling you where the, the content's coming from. Yep. And you know, you could envision a branded introduction for all the videos that a school produces, and then the, the watermarked logo. And those are all things that remind the viewer, the student, teacher, anyone who's watching the video or, or the streaming service, whatever it may be, that this is the source of the goods, whereas copyright is once you start to delve into the lesson, into the video, you are seeing the expression of an idea. You can't own an idea, right? That's against public policy. Owning an idea would be horrible, right? It would stop people from having ideas, and it would lead to a situation where someone says, I have an idea, and they do nothing with it. What you can own is the expression of an idea, right? The same instance, you can't own facts, right? People don't own facts because that would, again, be a problem from a a public policy speech perspective, but you can own discussion of those facts. So the the way that I explain that, and this goes right back to my my time in copyright class in law school, is Saving Private Ryan. So you, of course, are familiar with Steven Spielberg, and you, of course, mm-hmm. are familiar with the, the, the script of Saving Private Ryan, or if anyone isn't, they certainly should watch the movie. Mm-hmm. You own, as Steven Spielberg or the studio, you own copyright in that script. What you don't own under copyright law is the facts of the war, mm-hmm. and you don't own the idea of a movie about a war, but you do own the characters, and you do own the script and you do own the expression of the themes of that movie, right? What the effect of war is and how it's explored and all of the intricacy and the, again, expression around the facts and and the idea that I just explained. So when you are teaching a lesson, you, you don't own 
the the facts that you um, you would present from a science book or from a history book or from an English book, whatever what it may be. Yeah. Uh, you you don't own the idea of, of proper sentence structure or biology, but what you can own is the expression of how you're teaching that. Okay. That's a really important distinction, uh, and so I think when you start to come back to that Saving Private Ryan example, it's much easier to to put things in buckets in terms of what's an idea, what's a fact, and what, it, what in fact, is expression. Mm-hmm. And because teachers are performing and they're expressing themselves and they're expressing ideas and facts to students, uh, copyright law, particularly when it's on video, is really important. And I think schools should recognize that. I think teachers should recognize that and really pay close attention to what is and is not copyrightable and then what is and is not their original expression versus someone else's. Okay. Yeah. So maybe this is a okay example for understanding. So obviously a teacher can't own the multiplication tables, but if she comes in and expresses the multiplication tables by teaching them through singing, which her predecessor also did, how do you sort that out? Yeah, that's a great example. And it makes a lot of sense. I teach a class at a, a food incubator, and a lot of times someone will say, well, how do I protect my, my recipe? And the example I'll give is that you can't own the recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. That's something that exists for everyone. What you can own is the expression of the recipe. So when you write out the expression on a piece of paper and you, you print it or you put it in a cookbook, you own that particular expression. And what you end up having is a very thin copyright. Uh, and thin means not strong, not robust, right? So mm-hmm. you have a very small, thin amount of copyright in that recipe, or in your example, the expression of the multiplication table, right? So if you were to put together a multiplication table that was color-coded and that had original design elements, you, you would have some manner of copyright in that because there's expression but you would have very, very limited rights. Okay. Uh, and so these nuances are things to understand when you are, in fact, using materials because you, you want to have confidence that you're not infringing on other people's copyright. And you also want to have confidence that you are producing original content. Now, just briefly to give you the other side of thin copyright, thick copyright would be something like the Harry Potter series where... Mm-hmm. It was original. Right original and and characters that were only briefly mentioned have entire backstories that are off the page and a whole world is developed. Uh, And so there's extremely thick, broad copyright there. Okay. That's a great example. So when you talk about then the the trademark and having the copyright, how do you advise your clients to sort of set out to do that? Are there protections that you can put in place and how do you do that? Sure. Copyright and, and trademark law are each um, federal. I mean, there's, there's federal statutes governing each of them, and each of them can be registered, and there's a, there's a process. So the, the school may may want to look into what is necessary to obtain formal registration of their trademarks. The school may want to look into whether or not they want to copyright some of the expression or the materials or the content produced by their teachers. And the reason why you do that is because when you have formal official recognition under a federal statute, that provides you with 
very strong rights and uh, a presumption of validity, and it helps make sure that the content that your school and your educators are producing is protected. And it also acts as a defense should someone allege that there is infringement. Uh, it's not as if you you show that registration and that's where the the inquiry into infringement begins and ends, uh, but it certainly is helpful. So I, w- I would encourage schools to start thinking about what type of intellectual property they might have. You may need to you know, work with an attorney to do that. Most attorneys will be able to help identify some of the, the steps you can take to make sure that you are in a position to protect yourself. And the way that I phrase it is offensively and defensively. Offensively, so you can make sure that none of the original content or the um, source identifiers that you're using are are misused. And defensively, should someone come to you as the educator, you as the school and say that you're you're doing what I just described, you can say, oh, no, I'm not. I've, I've thought about this and here's why it's distinct and unique. Okay. Do you have some solid examples of different things that you could do for a trademark, for example? If a school doesn't feel that they have that already, how can they go about setting that up? Sure. So there's usually a, a combination of steps to take if, if you wanted to develop a unique trademark and you would work with potentially a branding agency and a step that's usually missed, in my experience, is also making sure to vet the trademark with an attorney. Uh, and the reason why you would do that is because the branding agency will be able to help you develop a logo, a name, a source identifier that really makes sense and and conveys the right messages to the students and teachers and the viewers. And then the next step, once you have that, is to make sure from a legal perspective that that trademark can actually be protected. So there's something called the Abercrombie scale after the the store. Uh, It's a a case. Mm -hmm. And it identifies different types of trademarks. And some of them are considered to be, the legal term is inherently distinctive. And marks that are inherently distinctive can be immediately trademarked, whereas marks that are not need to develop secondary meaning. And what that means is that when someone looks at it, they think of the source of the goods and services as opposed to what the actual trademark is. So a great example, without going over the the full Abercrombie scale, is Apple. So Apple for computers, there's an arbitrary association there. And arbitrary is one of the, the categories on the Abercrombie scale. And that means it's inherently distinctive because when a consumer, when you see the Apple logo, the Apple name on software or hardware, you know where it came from. And that is helpful in identifying the source of the goods and services. Whereas if you were to use Apple for apples, that's generic. And the entire population needs to be able to use the word apples to talk about apples and to describe apples and to refer to apples. So you can't have the trademark Apple for apples. And so when you are coming up with a trademark, you need to not only think about the different categories you might fall into for what is and is not inherently distinctive, you also need to then take it a step further and make sure that someone else isn't already using that name or that logo. And the standard there is is likelihood of confusion. So the way that I will usually say it when I'm presenting or teaching is it's not an exact replication of a name or a logo that is only trademark infringement. It's a likelihood of confusion. And there's a number of factors that go into that. I could go through each of the individual factors, but the, the shorthand way that I explain it is if you 
as someone who is coming up with a new mark, think you're being clever in the way that you are distinguishing your mark from another person's. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you're probably not. Trademark law and the United States Patent Trademark Office and judges have contemplated this. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as simple as changing a color or making a name plural. And so you really want to be aware of what makes your mark unique and distinctive and talk to an attorney about it so they, they can they can give you an, an analysis. Okay. And then I guess I'm going to go to the same place for copyright. Is that a difficult process to obtain a copyright? And how do you also protect yourself. We didn't talk about this, but if someone else has copyrighted their material and they think that your school is infringing, how do you protect yourself in that case? So there's a process also for obtaining copyright registration. Uh, A word of not so much warning, uh, just of note, is Mm -hmm. that it is fairly easy to fill out the applications for registration. Okay. And that's for copyright or trademark. It is much harder to fill them out correctly. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and uh, I suppose you would expect me as the attorney to say that, uh, but it is... <laughs> oh, no, I don't mean it that way. Just you, anytime you fill <laughs> oh, out no, a government I, I form. Mean it that way. <laughs> I mean it that way, absolutely. It is very easy to fill the form out. It is much harder to understand what that information may mean in practice further down the line. And so yeah. when you are pursuing these registrations, you want to be aware of that fact because you don't want to think you're protected only to find out that you've made some manner of error mm-hmm. that is going to cause you to not have those protections later on. So you can file for registration with the USPTO, but really take the time to do it right. It's better to pay a little bit more upfront or to, to commit some more time upfront to, to doing it right. The same thing with, with copyright. Uh, copyright registrations are fairly easy to pursue, but a lot of times what will happen, for example, is that someone will file one copyright registration and will assume that covers them for all the content they're producing. And that's not the case. Okay. Uh, and w- we would want to, as counsel for any school, really work through what is and is not copyrightable. And we, we would do an, an audit, so to speak. And I think that that kind of leads me into, I think the core of your last question is that it's important that teachers and schools are educated around copyright law, uh, because it's one thing to produce content in the sense of teaching in a classroom. It's, it's much different when you're putting a video up where the public can view it, if that is or is not the case, or where a number of people are, are going to be seeing it and using it. So you want to make sure as a school and as a teacher, you, you really understand what fair use is. You really understand what is copyright and what is not copyright. Okay. And I can give you a really concrete example. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about this in, in passing, is that there is this belief, which is, is not unfounded, that I'm an educator and I, uh, I'm teaching and I'm using copyrighted material for good reason, for good purpose. Thus, it's, it's fair use. And I'm not liable for copyright infringement. And the truth is that it's much more complicated than that. There are a number of rules in quotations that go into whether or not something is or is not fair use. And it's particularly complicated in in the academic arena. Most of the the law that exists for fair use in the academic sense is, is built around photocopying. And we are worlds away from photocopying right now. Yeah. So having having this understanding around what 
what constitutes fair use is, is really important, something I would okay. encourage schools to make sure that their content producers, which is a role a teacher is playing now in this transition to distance learning and to uh, producing videos, really understand those nuances. One other point about fair use is that fair use is an affirmative defense. And what that means is that someone who owns some manner of material that's copyrighted says you've committed copyright infringement. And an affirmative defense is, yes, I have, but it's permitted by law. So you still have to go through the process of, of, of litigating that. Uh, and so it's not really as simple as just this is fair use and you move on. Okay. Can you by any chance use the Harry Potter example in terms of what you're explaining now? So Harry Potter, I assume is J.K. Rowling, has a thick copyright for that material. What if a teacher decides that they want to read and analyze chapter one of Harry Potter online? Would a teacher be considered to be infringing on that copyright? I'll give the classic lawyer answer. It, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. And it's not a but, trick question. I, I don't mean to be throwing you off, but I'm just looking for a cr- no, concrete example. I think it's a great question. And it, it depends is unfortunately a frustrating answer because it, there are a number of other factors that, that are going to go into whether or not that would or would not be permissible. So copyright certainly provides broad rights to J.K. Rowling and, and the copyright holders around Harry Harry Potter. And if you are going to read the book in its entirety or a few chapters of it, uh, and you're going to say, put that up on YouTube for your students to listen to, uh, that's that's a reproduction of copyrighted material. Yeah. Uh, so certainly you, you could run into an issue where there are problems around whether or not that is copyright infringement. Now, uh, that's not to say that teachers suddenly need to stop teaching in the way that they have in the past or, or to, to cross Harry Potter off their, their, their <laughs> list of, of books that should be read. Of course not. Uh, but what it does say is that you should be aware of the fact that you're, you're no longer reading to a closed classroom of students. There's potentially a much bigger audience. And think about what that means and the right steps you can take and analyze it from a fair use perspective, uh, maybe potentially look at what licenses a school may or may not have. Uh, does, does, uh, does each student have their own book? Uh, who's going to be viewing this video? Is it open to the public? Is it open to the class? I mean, there are a number of factors that need to go into it, but the, the idea is to just stop and take a second to think about it so that it's not something that the teacher or the school is surprised with when they receive a cease and desist letter saying that your lesson needs to come down. You mentioned earlier that contracts also come into play when it comes to online learning and content that schools are producing. Can you explain what what you mean by that? What types of contracts should schools be thinking about with their online learning and, and what types of things should they be considering? Sure. I think contracts are important in, in all aspects of life and, and they are for the purpose of providing clarity And in this instance, the school is going to want to make sure that they have clarity with their educators and then with any service providers around what they're doing. So you can imagine that if a school is transitioning its content online, they want to have some certainty that the service provider, whether it is Google or whether or not it is another tech provider, Mm -hmm. 
are going to provide services in ways that they understand. And in that instance, you really want to make sure that you as a school take a deep dive into what services are actually being provided and what terms are around those services, particularly because you are, as an educator, as a school, educating minors. Mm -hmm. So look at the contracts. Have an attorney look at the contracts. Really make sure... Uh, from a general legal perspective, that there's nothing in there that's going to be problematic, but from an intellectual property perspective, that there are clear provisions around who owns the content and how that content can be used and who's okay. responsible for liability uh, and what instances and what that looks like in practice, not just on the page. And that way, when you are using a service provider, when you are putting your content online, you have a strong and clear understanding as a school around where your rights and obligations begin and end. And again, you don't want to be surprised by any of this. Now, on the other side, when you are, as a school, working with your teachers who are essentially in the role of content producers, you want to make sure that they understand that there's a set of best practices, policies, or, or potentially even obligations around what they, the content producers and teachers, need to know and be aware of when they're producing content. Okay. And so you want to make sure that those policies are articulated, that they're known, that they're understood, that everyone has seen them. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure the same with the best practices. If it is a contract, depending on the circumstances, you want to make sure that you are clear in the language and you're, you're diligent. And that way, you as a school are, are, are managing your risk and you're, you're putting a system in place so that these intellectual property considerations are thought about in advance. And again, you're not surprised. You know, for example, if you don't have an understanding around who owns intellectual property, a school could easily find itself in a situation where intellectual property that they believe is theirs and that's very important to their unique curriculum is actually owned by someone else. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important as as an example, something you want to think about before it happens. Right. Right. And I would imagine, I think I know your answer to this, but I would think coming up with, you know, best practices and I almost think of it like a student handbook, but an IP handbook for teachers in their content is going to be all the more important because I would think that there might be some future in distance learning. But what what are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're all back in the classroom in September and it's just all going to return to normal? I don't think any of us know. It, it, it seems that there uh, there has been changing information from moment to moment. Uh, from my my understanding, uh, it, it seems likely that there will be waves of shutdowns depending upon where the uh, the number of cases are at and where the um, the coronavirus is potentially spreading. So I, I think that from a perspective of risk management and being prepared, schools are unlikely to be able to just sort of say, okay, we're back in the classroom. That's it. This is over with. We did the distance learning from March through the end of the school year, and we did okay. Now we can put it aside. It's likely that there there could be periods where certain districts in certain areas of different states need to go into a distance learning model in order to control the spread of the virus. Uh, And it it also is worth noting that from a more general perspective, uh, distance learning and its importance and its role uh, for teachers and students and education overall has grown over time and and was expected to grow over time. 
So there's a real incentive to, to do it right. I, I also can envision a situation where come September, students are going a couple days a week uh, mm-hmm. in, in groups, and then the other days of the week are at home doing distance learning. So there, there could be mixed use. And so I think now that we're coming upon the end of the school year, sometime soon, uh, you know, not not immediate for mm-hmm. all the teachers out there are thinking, I know we're not even close, Yeah, that the, the summer provides an opportunity for the school to, to take a deep breath and, and reset and make sure that everything is in place to make it as seamless and productive as possible for all the, the teachers and students who are, who are using distance learning as, as their way of, of connecting and uh, advancing their knowledge. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, the last piece of this, which is not uh, technically your area, but I'm sure you know more than the average person, and we've not talked about it, is technology, which is what all of this leans on. What are your thoughts on the technology and sort of the rights around technology and that piece of it? That's right. I would say in any instance where a school is, is looking to make sure that their, their distance learning practices are as strong as possible, they need to not only think about the law, but also think about the technology they're using. Sometimes the technology may, may provide a, a solution itself, uh, and it may actually have considered the law in, uh, in the way that it was designed, or it hasn't, but you want to know that up front. So it's really important to vet the technologies and the, the services that you're using and to consider how those services of that technology relate to intellectual property law and law in general. And almost always, the answer is going to be a combination of tech and law with an appreciation for each coming from the, the relative expert. So when I, again, when I'm, when I'm teaching or when I'm presenting, I'll say, if you want legal advice, ask a lawyer. If you want accounting advice, ask an accountant. And I then say, your job as the, the individual who's getting that advice is to understand how it intersects. And a, a good attorney and a good accountant will appreciate that sometimes there could be conflicting advice or how it fits together. So when you as a school administrator or, or as a teacher are trying to figure out how technology fits into this, Talk to people who, who work in technology, talk to people who work in law, and really consider how the two fit together mm-hmm. and ask the technology people to consider the perspective of the law and ask the, the legal people to consider the perspective of the technology so that you are making informed decisions around all of your practices, not just intellectual property, but selection of technology as well. Okay. Alex, this has been so informative. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me today. And I wish you well. Diana, thanks for having me. This was uh, a lot of fun and uh, I hope it was helpful. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free to have them reach out to me. It's it's an interesting and fun topic. Yeah, definitely. And if anybody does want to reach out to Alex, you can find his information on our website, www.bglaw.com, where you will also find a lot of content written by Alex and others related to all of the issues surrounding COVID-19. And we also circulate all that content on our social media accounts. You can go to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram and search Barton Gilman. Thanks for joining us today. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com.
www.thepowerofpowerchurch.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.